This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Lots of big words, right? Nice work. Very nice work. And for the rest of you, don't be scared. Don't be scared. So we are starting a new series in First Peter called A Sojourner's Hope, or The Sojourner's Hope. Uh, this is what we like to do here at New City. We like to choose a book of the Bible and then walk through it verse by verse, passage by passage until we get to the end. This is our steady diet of what we do here at New City. So what I wanna do here and this morning's time together is I wanna introduce First Peter to you. I, I want to do my best in the time allotted today, knowing that we'll have weeks to be able to do this together. I, I wanna be able to set the tone for us so we can get an idea of what's happening in this context. And even a, a, a short gloss of what the main themes of First Peter are and how they interface with our world today. So simply put, uh, 1 Peter is written to weary Christians who need reminded of their hope. Uh, These Christians specifically are marginalized. Uh, We'll talk later about where these places are in the world and what was going on. Uh, But the reality is, is that God's people in the world are sojourners. God's people in the world are exiles, And when you are in exile, your experience is wearying. And we need encouragement. We need hope. And so with that, we're going to dive in to 1 Peter. Uh, One of the things that I remember frequently when I read 1 Peter, I've been reflecting on 1 Peter for some time. As I'm encountering the themes, I remember when I was in college. Uh, When I was in college late, on into my four years, I ended up changing my major to philosophy. And I've told aspects of my story, I think, from up here, but this one particularly, I remember uh, when I decided to do this seemingly on a whim, and I went in to talk to the chair of the philosophy department. And I told him, I want to change my major, but I got to be done in four years. What can you do for me? So we talked, and he pulled up my transcript and my GPA, and he said, well, I can let you into these two classes a couple weeks late but you might struggle. And he was right, Uh, he was right. And one of the classes was his class and it was called existentialism. And I remember for the first few weeks, I'm learning how to read again, it seems like. And I'm learning how to write, uh, maybe for the first time. And so I didn't speak for a few weeks, I was just listening, but I remember the first time I spoke up, I asked a question and it became apparent to him that I was a Christian. And he hadn't known that. And it became apparent to me that I was the only Christian in the room. So I ended up in his office and uh, we were talking and it was just like a movie. I remember his desk had books stacked really high and every flat surface in his office was either covered by a book or paper. 
And as we were talking, uh, he just thought for sure he was gonna ask me a couple simple questions and I was gonna, I guess, recant from the faith. And when he realized that wasn't going that direction, I remember he put his hands on the desk and he leaned forward and he said, Damien, I thought you were smart. Just this look of incredulity and frustration and anger. Now, if you know me, you know that that's like my soft spot. Like right there, that's like a dagger into my heart. And especially as a 21-year-old, I just thought, I wanna be smart. Aren't I smart? Before you knew this, you thought I was smart enough. The rest of the semester and really every class I took with him after that, I received pressure in his class from him, mental and even moral pressure because to him, it was immoral to be so exclusive. It was immoral to believe that my life actually needed to be lived by implication of Jesus. So looking back on that, what I understand that that moral pressure, that mental pressure for my beliefs he was really trying to convert me. And then it went from that to trying to silence me. That's what it was. So it went from, well, if he's not gonna listen to me, then I'm gonna silence him. And that at its root is persecution. Now, I wouldn't have called it that because I, like you, probably define persecution as mainly a physical thing, right? Someone attacks you physically. But it's important for us to understand the Bible's understanding of persecution. It's much broader than that. You see, there's a spectrum to persecution, Uh, But the whole goal is to either convert you or silence you. So persecution happens to any culture, usually a minority culture, within a larger culture that disagrees with them. And you see, the minority culture that's persecuted is persecuted because it's viewed as dangerous. Right? The minority culture is viewed as dangerous and therefore it must be silenced. So I came across this helpful definition of what persecution is in a broader level, and I'm gonna tell you in a moment why we're talking about this. This is the definition. The societal marginalization of believers with a view to eliminating their voice and influence. Christianity Today is a magazine, and I read this. They had stats on world persecution, and they they did talk about in the year 2013, uh, there was a, a an increase by a doubling of reported deaths, or that is to say murders, martyrdom, of those who believe, which put the reported number at just over 2,100 deaths worldwide for the Christian faith in 2013. But the article talks about the fact that most persecution is not violence, but violence is the end of the extreme, and then the ultimate extreme, if a group will not be silenced, is death. So there's this spectrum of persecution and most of the world is not persecuted physically. While outbursts of physical persecution could emerge more and more and throughout history there have been bursts of those and then they go down and we could expect that it's possible that it could happen here in the West, of course, as well. But the article points out that in the immediate future we're more likely to experience persecution that is relational estrangement, victimization, job loss, and general marginalization. In 2014, Ross Duthat, a New York Times columnist, wrote an article called this, quote, the terms of our surrender. That was the name of the article, the terms of our surrender. And Ross uh, Duthat writes as a Roman Catholic journalist, and he's talking about the fact that 
the, the religious conservatives war in culture, right? For a conservative view of marriage, conservative view of sexuality, uh, uh, for a pro-life agenda. He said, the, the battle is lost. That's what he said in 2014. That ba- the battle is over, the war we've lost. So now the only thing up for consideration, he says, are the terms of our surrender. Now, he, he has two ways in which he sees this could go, right? He wonders if it could be that we just agree to disagree, right? Will each side peacefully coexist? Can we do that? Can we disagree with one another? Uh, but he aptly observes that there is a second option that's emerging quickly, and he calls it this. Uh, it eliminates negotiation, and it forces conformity. And this is what he says, quote, the official line of the view of forcing to conformity is you bigots don't get to negotiate anymore. You see, why am I saying this? Am I saying this because I want us to be afraid? Am I saying this because I wanna try to sober you to the reality that Christians are marginalizing, we're being marginalized, that we are not the majority culture? Maybe those things, maybe that last thing is true, but that certainly isn't why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because, as one commentator put it, perhaps First Peter's universal relevance is due to its presentation of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived out within the larger unbelieving society. You see, every single one of us has to understand that our hope is in the risen Lord and nothing else. And there's nothing, hardly anything, that makes us reflect upon that truth that our hope is in Jesus than when we're being marginalized unjustly. You see, when my reputation and my social status and my social access to privilege and even maybe my ability to provide for my family, when all of those things could be threatened because I believe that a Jewish man physically rose from the dead, is Lord of the universe and has ultimate claim on my life, then and only then will I begin to truly reflect on my hope. And I would say the same is true for you. And in the audience of 1 Peter, that's exactly what was happening. You see, these people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, now what is modern-day Turkey, they were being marginalized for their faith. They were being unjustly persecuted. Some of their livelihoods were being threatened because the implications of what they were asked to do, the things that they were asked to value were so antithetical to the gospel that they could not engage in it. So for them and us as God's people living in the time before Jesus returns, we all have questions. All of us have questions about how to live our faith with boldness and wisdom. I had lunch last week with three of you and it was so interesting because as I was listening to you ask me questions about how to navigate certain realities in your workplace, all three of them, Uh, There was a spectrum of people who were confused by your belief all the way to people who were frustrated with your belief. This happened in this church last week. And I thought, wow, 1 Peter is meaningful. 1 Peter is important. Every single one of us every day is navigating this reality in our own hearts and wherever God would call us. How are we to live out our faith in society, 
in an unbelieving society with wisdom and boldness. Now, the Christians Peter was writing to were facing troubling times. They were being persecuted mainly through social ostracism. So we'll read that they were being slandered by malicious talk. They were being undermined in their relationships with their associates in the workplace and in their unbelieving family. Their honor in the community was being threatened and possibly their livelihoods, that is to say how they provide for their families, were being threatened. So the issue of how to maintain a vital Christian faith in these circumstances and how to respond to such unjust treatment was pressed upon them. And Peter knows this. And so Peter writes to give these Christians hope and consolation and encouragement. And what's interesting is the way in which he does that is he explains to them their identity in Christ. And he also explains to them that suffering is an integral part to our formation in our identity in Christ. Trials. We're usually not very comfortable with that. We're not very comfortable with suffering or trials and those will come up. That will be a major theme. So, so that's the story. Not unlike what we're facing. A marginalized community of Christians who maybe aren't being killed or beaten but are being marginalized and mocked and slandered. So that's the context. And today what I wanna do briefly is I want us to walk through these first three, two verses, seeing three things. First, the man, that is Peter, the message, that is who he's writing to, and then the way forward, all right? So first, the man. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There he is, Peter, he's the author. And yes, it's that Peter, right? What does it mean to be an apostle? Well, in this day, an apostle was an office, meaning that you were recognized to have an authority distinct from even the great early church leaders. Apostles were recognized as equal in authority to the prophets of the Old Testament era. Now, the fact that Peter is the writer of this is not inconsequential. And I was reflecting on this. Does it matter that Peter wrote this? Do you ever think about that? Who are the men who are writing this and what's their story? So if we think about the themes of suffering and persecution and being marginalized and ostracized for your faith, let's just think about Peter's story for a minute, all right? A major theme in Peter's life when we read is fear of what people think about him, right? It's a major theme. So if you remember towards the end of Jesus's life, if you just read the gospels, Peter is a knucklehead mostly throughout them. And then it gets to the end and all of a sudden he finds this deep courage that's been there in words all along and you just wonder how it's gonna express itself. And then these, these authorities come to arrest Jesus and Peter takes out a sword and goes to attack the guy. And he, and he has mediocre aim and he cuts the guy's ear off and Jesus basically says, no, no that's, not, that's not how we do it, Peter. And he heals the man. So Peter puts away his sword, runs away, but then he, he shows up in the next chapters and now he's keeping his distance, wanting to know what's happening with the Lord and he's standing by a fire, warming his hands in the cool of the night and there is a teenage girl standing there and she asks him three times, are you with him? Are you a disciple of that Jesus? And he denies it, not once, not twice, 
but three times. Not to, a, not to a Roman soldier threatening his life, but to a teenage girl asking him why. There's lots of reasons. I mean, he, he didn't know what was going to happen, but presumably at minimum, it's because he does not want to be associated with Jesus for fear of what that might mean for him. Now here, he's writing this letter to these Christians. Remember, what they're experiencing is pressure to be silenced. Peter is silenced by a 15-year-old girl and he's gonna write 1 Peter to all of this, this huge area of modern-day Turkey and tell them how to, how to deal with oppression for their faith. But it doesn't just stop there. 15 years before he writes this, the letter to the Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul. And if you remember what happened in that letter, Paul tells the story of how he had to confront Peter. Why did he have to confront Peter? Well, Peter was enjoying his freedom, his newfound freedom in the gospel as pertains to the dietary law. Now in America, we would just assume that he was eating bacon, but for sure he was eating some type of unclean animal, all right? He was, he was at the table of these, of these Gentile Christians. Well, then James rolls into town from Jerusalem with his squad and Peter looks up and sees them. And when he sees them, he immediately removes himself from the table and shrinks back. And Paul sees it and Paul confronts him and said, I had to confront Peter to his face that he was living as contrary to the truth of the gospel. Why? Well, he didn't know what was gonna happen when James and the boys from Jerusalem saw him sitting at a Gentile table. I mean, it's one thing to talk about the fact that in Jesus, all the walls have been broken down and it's a complete different reality to experience in real life the bringing together of different race, races, the bringing together of different cultures, the bringing together of different worldviews. And he wasn't quite ready for that. And that was 15 years before he wrote this. So I'll ask again, is it inconsequential that Peter is the one who wrote this letter? Shouldn't Paul have written this letter? Paul seemed to do much better in this area. I get the picture, and I know it's not probably entirely true, I get the picture Paul didn't really care much about his life. Right? Peter seems to be kind of a scared guy. I think that it makes perfect sense that Peter is the one who wrote this letter. And this is why. The gospel actually changes people. You see, it makes sense to me as a pastor, first as a Christian, then as a pastor, as I watch people who, are, who believe that they are held captive to a certain sin pattern, right? Whether it's fear of man or greed or anger or lust or all of them at the same time or different times depending on the day. We, we tend to focus and think about all of the ways in which we are captive to sin, when in, in reality, the gospel has the power to transform us and set us free, right? We think we're trapped, and so therefore, we project that on other people. And so we all have this opportunity as Christians to, to walk with one another and to speak into each other's lives in areas of struggle. And the fact is, is that God is and might call some of you to speak into your brothers and sisters' lives in the exact area that you struggle in. God may call you to speak into your spouse's life, into a community group member's life for fear of other people, for love of money, for lust, catching the eye gaze. 
And then all of a sudden, you're opened up to this vulnerability, right? Someone pulls you aside and says, I think you're being really harsh to your spouse or you're being really disrespectful or you're being really harsh to your children, right? To do that, wow, you do that, all of a sudden, what happens? Your life gets opened up to them to be able to say, you're a hypocrite. What are you, what are you, what are you doing speaking into my life right there? Let me give you 10 examples of how you're no better than me. Well, that's not the point, is it? That's not the point of me lovingly speaking into your life or you speaking into my life. It's not about judging me. It's about putting, the display, putting on display the fact that the gospel actually changes people. So absolutely it makes sense to me that Peter would be the perfect person to write this letter. The one who struggles the most, at least we see in the account of the New Testament, to be writing this, proclaiming the fact that this is part of his story and God uses part of our story of transformation to speak into the lives of other people who are also struggling with the same thing. Whether it's a struggling marriage, a struggle with pride, a struggle with anger, Whatever it is, I could keep listing them. Just know that to be used by God is a vulnerable thing because it's not about you or your performance. It's about the power of the gospel. So that's the man who's writing the book, the apostle Peter, scared of 15-year-old girls telling people, you might lose your job. You might be marginalized for your faith. You might be ridiculed, but that's okay. It's that Peter It's that transformation. Next, the message. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's always important when you talk about the message to ask the question, uh, who and when is Peter writing to? So he says this, he calls them elect exiles. So they go together. All right, it's not just that these people are elect and chosen, whatever that means, and I'll talk about that in a minute, and they happen to be exiles. It's actually one thing. They are elect exiles. You see, it's not just that they happen to be elect and they happen to be exiles. It is, in fact, what he's describing is their relationship with God and their relationship with society. Okay, and when you, whatever your relationship with God is, it determines your relationship with society. You either fit in and belong to society because you're not a child of God, or you are a child of God and you are an exile in society. So in fact, it is because of their relationship with God, their new relationship with God, that their relationship with society has been troubled. Now, the word elect in the Bible It means to choose. Right after that, he says, uh, verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Right, no matter what you think about election, you might not even know that that's a thing. Okay, but it is a thing. And it has been a thing for a long time amongst Christians. And whether you believe that God elected a people or God elected individuals, there are two things at least that are always true to everyone in the Bible about election. And it's this, election had absolutely nothing to do with how God needed you, nothing. It had nothing to do with your superiority. It had nothing to do with your morality. It's not as though God looked out and said, I need that person. My mission cannot go forward without that man, without that woman. No. You see, to declare that the readers are elect 
means that they belong to the people of God and not because they're more pious or morally superior to others. But they've been called to a distinct community. And here's the second thing election always means. To a distinct mission. Elect always, you're always, God's people are always chosen to a mission. You see, God is forming a people for his mission in the world. And it's not about how pious they are because God is the one who transforms. So what this also means is that God has decided to love you simply because he wanted to love you. That's what that means. And so often we spend our life thinking, I I just wanna be loved and how do I earn love? Right, many of us were taught in various ways, not always by our parents. Many of us had great parents. Sometimes we didn't. But sometimes it was, we had our own issues and we, we, we had this inordinate need to be shown that we were loved. And so it created these habits in us and these dispositions to always perform, to earn other people's love. And right here, Peter is saying, you cannot perform anything to make God love you more. God pursued you with pure and passionate desire to love you because he wanted to love you. So that is now their relationship with God. Now, what does exile mean, right? So they're elect exiles. Like I said, now that they're the people of God, their relationship with society is that of an exile. An exile has the meaning of temporary sojourning away from home. Hence why we call this the sojourner's hope. Sojourning or exile is a very, very significant theme in the Bible. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve, they were kicked out of the garden, right? They were put out of the garden for sin. And now what, does, what is happening to them? They are said to be in exile, right? And now the whole Bible is a journey to be back in God's presence where the kingdom of God and earth are one thing again. Remember Ben, a few weeks ago, talked about all of us have this need, this desire to be home, but we're never home. And that's because the kingdom of God has not been brought fully on earth. So the whole Bible is about this sojourning, this reality that God's people are waiting for heaven or the kingdom and earth to come back together. So it started in the garden and it's gonna finish in a city. Those of you in community Bible reading, we're in Exodus right now. In Exodus, God's people are saved from Egypt, but then what happens? They become sojourners. Exiles awaiting the promised land. Well, we're gonna read this year that they actually get to the promised land, but they're not there long. Uh, they get exiled again. They get, they get brought out by the, by the Babylonians, right? So this, this reality, God's people are exiled over and over and over, and they're taken ultimately into Babylon, and all the while, they're longing for their true home. Now, this raises a significant issue, a big theme in the book. How are we as Christians to view our interaction with the world around us? The way I dealt with this is when I was in college, another college story. I joined a fraternity after I became a Christian for the sake of mission. I wasn't interested in being a fraternity and there was a fraternity that kept recruiting me and I became a Christian and I was like, yikes, they need Jesus. So, and I went. So I went into this fraternity and, uh, and you realize that you're put in situations that, and I was in a very, what I would consider a moderate fraternity experience, and you're put in situations that are extreme, but they're not unlike things that we encounter every day. But I was really unchristian. 
And so I remember encountering all these tricky situations. And so I asked a friend of mine who had been in a fraternity uh, as a Christian, was years out of college, and he gave me this advice. He was like, you know, this is, what I, this is how I always managed it. I just thought to myself, this was my principle. I'm gonna do whatever they do except sober, as long as it's not breaking the law. So he tells this story about how one day uh, all of his friends of fraternity, uh, it was after finals, they went out and they rolled down this big hill and knocked over all these trash cans. He's like, I was sober. I thought, well, I don't think that's illegal. So down he goes, down the hill, right? Rolling down the hill, knocking over trash cans, except he was sober. So that's a very specific example of how I had day in and day out. Every day I come home from class, go into the fraternity house, think about how do I navigate this? Well, we all experience those realities. The question is, when we're confronted with these questions, do we flee? Do we hide? That's an option, right? It may not be a biblical option, but it's an option. You can flee, you can fight, right? I'm gonna fight, I'm a warrior. You can conform, right? Just assimilate. Well, I can do a lot of good if I just sort of conform and I fly under the radar, I'm just gonna do that thing and see how it goes. Or you can change things, right? I'm gonna be a change agent. Which is right? Which is right? The book is about that tension. That's what First Peter is trying to speak to. So sojourner does not mean that since we're on our way somewhere else, we should just view everything as though this is like a one-night hotel stay, right? I went to the Grand Canyon recently and on the way we stayed one night in a hotel before we got to the Grand Canyon, okay? Is that how am I to view my life? Like I'm just a sojourner onto my destination and this life is like just one night in a hotel. Absolutely not, absolutely not. The Bible is very clear. In fact, most of the Old Testament, most of the narrative in the Bible is God's people in exile. The Bible has plenty of things that tell us about how to live in exile. All right, Jeremiah 29 is probably the most famous example. Jeremiah is the prophet that is prophesying when God's people are taken out to Babylon. And this is what God says to Jeremiah. Remember, these people, these people he's writing to are terrified because they're not only being taken out of Jerusalem, they're being taken to a culture that, it, that hates their faith, that is antithetical to their faith. And maybe more than that, is known for taking in cultures and breaking them and making them conform to their worldview, to their faith. And that's where they're going. And this is what Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says through Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here are his directions. Hide. No, he doesn't say that. He says this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You see, we are called to be in the culture for the culture, never quite fitting in, right? In every culture of Christianity, some of our values will be accepted. Many will be rejected, but we're called to be in the culture 
for the culture. And this takes me to the last theme that I'm gonna mention this morning, and that is of suffering. You see, when you do that, there will be suffering. There will be trials. Now, some of us are afraid. Some of us are afraid of that because we think, I don't know if I can withstand that. I don't know if my faith has ever encountered that, right? So, so our view of suffering is that it's going to flush us out and we're finally gonna realize that we've been fake the whole time. But that's not how Peter understands it. That's not what Peter says. In fact, Peter understands that suffering becomes an opportunity for the Christian. No Christian goes into suffering and says, bring it on. But on the other side of suffering, they realize it's crystallized in their heart that I believe this. I, I, may, not, I may not react perfectly, but I actually believe this. I actually am willing to sacrifice for this. You see, because it taps into something that we do understand. The fact that we will always sacrifice for something we love, always, right? Think about an athlete. An athlete will always sacrifice sleep, certain foods, the weekend to train. Why? Because they love to compete. They'll sacrifice for that. Parents, I am convinced we sacrifice years of our lives, convinced of this, right? Think of all the sleep that we lose. Think of all the stress that we endure. Think of all the money we spend. Why? Why do we do that? Because we love our children. We love them and we'll sacrifice for them. Peter's saying that we will sacrifice for that with which we love. And here's the gospel. The only reason you love God is because he first loved you. And you see, when God pursues you and has you, you will automatically respond. As a child of God, you will respond. And that's what Peter is so sure of. That's what he says. According, you've been, you've been elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What does that mean? It means that God passionately loved you and he sent his son to purify you and he removed you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then you, you were born again and, and you didn't do anything to make yourself born. And then all of a sudden, you start loving things you didn't love before and you start resonating with things you didn't resonate with before and you, and you stop resonating with things that you used to resonate with. And then increasingly, you're confronted with values of the society around you. And you say, instead of saying yes, you say, ooh, no, 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 no. That's, I, don't, I don't want that, I don't, I don't love that. And Peter says, that will happen to you. And because it's so natural of a reaction, you will suffer for that, but it won't seem like effort because it's not, it won't be what you love. You'll love the Lord because he's made you his own. See, it's not about our performance. That's why we don't have to be scared. It's about God's love for us. God's pursuing you. The fact that God cleansed you and saved you. And some of you, I understand in this room, you're on a spectrum. You may not be a Christian. You may not be sure if you're a Christian or you may be a Christian. Wherever you are, we all need the same thing. And that is the grace of God. The fact that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. And those implications go on in every area of your life, every dark thought that you have, every dark action you take, every evil, wrong, disgusting word that comes out of your mouth towards your spouse or towards your children or towards the person who cuts you off in traffic. We all need the same thing, the grace of God. 
And you see, Peter reminds his readers that the God who took initiative in their lives has drawn them into an intimate, loving, and redemptive relationship with him. But this God also claims supreme authority over their lives. And that's good news. That is good news because a reminder like that is apt in times when we're troubled by circumstances in life and we're confused how to live and we're tempted to doubt God's goodness or faithfulness. You see, God has claimed us and he will sustain us. So the way forward, this is really quick. What, what happens tomorrow morning when you encounter something in the home or a commercial or a question from your child or an interaction with a coworker and you're not exactly sure how to deal with it, how to answer the question as a Christian. Greg Thompson's a pastor in Virginia who I'm always helped by and he says we have three options. There are, have been historically three options in how to deal in society as a Christian. There's domination, there's accommodation, and there's fortification. Some of us think, oh, I'm just gonna go in and dominate right? Yeah, because that's exactly what Jesus did, right? Second, some of us say, I'm just going to go in and accommodate. I'm just going to kind of fit in and just lay low, right? That's probably not the best option. Some of us, it's fortification. We just say, I'm going to build walls around me, and we're just going to gather with Christians, and just going to build these high, strong walls, and nothing can penetrate, right? That, that's not a good strategy. So what is the strategy? He says the strategy he sees in books like First Peter and in, and in the life of Jesus is not domination, it's not accommodation, it's not fortification, but it's incarnation. It's love. You see, if, if we're children of God, what does that mean? It means that we've been made ambassadors to go in and do what? To live out our full identity as children of God. You wanna know the mission of the church scattered? It's to live out your full identity as children of God. And yes, that's not gonna bode well in every situation, right? Because you're bringing the new world into the old world. You're taking light into darkness. You are salt, you are light, and you're going in. So then the question is, what's your motivation? If your heart motivation is domination, if it's winning, if it's, I'm afraid, I wanna protect myself, or if it's, I just wanna lay low so I don't ruffle any feathers. No, no, that's not loving. You see, as ambassadors of this new world, we go into every area of our life and our desire for others is flourishing, is their flourishing, right? Seek the welfare of the city and in that you will find your welfare. It's their flourishing to the glory of God and we do this because of what Jesus has done for us. You see, Jesus came in. He didn't back down. He didn't dominate. He didn't fortify. He didn't gather his people and say, okay, keep the sinners out. You guys are already bad enough. I don't want you to be <laughs> any more corrupted. No, he said, I have the power to change your life for you to flourish. And I'm actually gonna use you too. And you see, that's the hope of the sojourner, the living hope that in our transformation, not only will God protect us, but he'll actually use us. And that's what we get to look forward to in First Peter. Let's pray. Father, I am just as scared as everyone in this room. I'm probably more scared. I'm probably more scared than Peter was. In my fear, I, I turn to you, Jesus, and I know that you said you've, you would never leave me nor forsake me. 
And that's true for all of us. I, I pray for a movement of your spirit in this place now and, and, and ongoing where we would be willing to be the first to give up our privilege for the marginalized because we've been loved in Jesus. That we would be the first to use our power even if we are looked upon with scorn. That we would use our power for the underprivileged wherever that is. Even if it's a child, whether it's socioeconomic, whatever it is, I pray that we would be ambassadors in both word and deed of the new world that we represent. This is not our home. This is our mission. Spark our imaginations that we can serve you in so many ways that we're, that we're currently missing. Father, we have lots of questions and we know that you will guide us because you are a good father who cares for us. You won't put us in situations and, and leave us there, but you'll be with us. You'll protect us. You love us. In Jesus' name.